All right, so I asked you earlier to fill in the blank. Uh, there's just never enough. What did you come up with? What were some of the best answers you heard? There's never enough air conditioning. <laughs> Except in here most Sundays, in which there's too much air conditioning usually. I heard bacon. What else? Kindness. Never enough kindness. Time. Time was, I think, the number one answer. If this was Family Feud, that would be at the top of the list, right? <laughs> never enough time. Love. I heard someone say there's never enough of me to go around, <laughs> um, which sounds a little pretentious, but I get it. I totally get it. Uh, there's never enough of you to go around when you're pulled in a billion different directions. I totally understand. But, you know, I think we live with that feeling every day. I think Houston, especially in a pretty spectacular way, gets its arms around us and, and just squeezes every ounce of vitality out of us if we let it. Because in a city like Houston, there's just never enough. There's never enough time. Everybody's late everywhere in Houston. <laughs> everywhere you go, there's never enough lanes on any road that you're on. There's never enough. There's never enough of you. And if you're a parent, you know there's never enough that you can give to be satisfied with your parenting. There's always one more book you could have read your kids. There's always one more lesson you could have taught them. There's always one more thing you could have done with them. Parenting is just this constant practice of just shame and feeling bad about failing um, and comparing yourselves to other parents. You know, you're just never good enough sometimes, all of us. You're never man enough. You're never woman enough. You're not a good enough boyfriend. You're not a good enough girlfriend. You're not a good enough friend friend. You're not a good enough wife or husband. You don't give enough to the church. You don't do enough to help people. There's always enough in the back of our minds. And the idea that we are insufficient. And we live with that shame, I think, underneath the surface. We live with the guilt of never doing enough, even though we're doing so much enough. It just doesn't seem to be enough. And I think this probably has more to do uh, with our theology and with what we, what we believe about God. Now, people would say that's just about our culture, that's just about the world around us. I think it has more to do with your theology because what you really believe about God will bear itself out in the way you behave, in the way you live your life. Your real belief system is revealed by the choices that you make. And so I think we spend a little bit too much time bowing down to the lesser gods of this world, the, the gods that, you know, like prosperity or popularity or the success or whatever, those gods that have us constantly bowing down, constantly submitting ourselves to them because you can never satisfy those gods. Whatever you do is not going to be enough. There's always going to be something more that you have to do. There's a next step, always. And there's always this level of uncertainty when that is your theology. And that's kind of what we've been talking about with Leviticus. Because the people in Leviticus, in the Levitical times, 3,500 years ago, they were bowing down to lesser gods. And so when God comes to the people in Leviticus and says over and over again, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God, we're all like, okay, we get it. We know who you are. Do you have to keep reminding yourself? Like, what's this about? Why do you keep telling us who you are? It's because up until that point, the Lord was not the Lord their God. They had other gods, and God is reminding them, you can forget about all those other gods. I am the Lord your God now. And this is how we're going to live together. And some of us came here today 
whether we want to admit it or not, bowing down pretty regularly to other gods that are never satisfied with us. Other gods that always require more because we are never enough. Now, this God that introduces himself in Leviticus and in really the first five books of the Bible to the people, to the Hebrew people, after they've been in Egypt for several generations, this God comes along and this, this God is presented as a different kind of God. This God cares about the well-being of the people. This God wants people to be healthy and to eat good things and not bacon and like we're going to do Thursday. And God wants people to be holy and he wants them to thrive and to live a long time. And when we hear this in our 21st century ears, we think, well, of course God wants what's good for people. Of course God is nice. Of course God is good because we've been conditioned to think about God in that way since we were born. We've heard that God is love and that God is good. What are you, what are you supposed to say when I say God is good? All the time, all the time, God is good. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven, right? Those are the things we've learned about God from our childhood. That's the norm, that God is good, that God is nice, that God cares about you. What I want to tell you is that 3,500 years ago, nobody believed God cared about you or anyone else. Now, most people believed in a God or in some gods. No one 3,500 years ago had any reason to believe that the gods were good, that the gods were nice, that the gods cared about you, that the gods could care less about your prayer requests, that the gods listened to you. That was not the reality those people lived with. That was not their theology. The gods were distant. The gods were not to be trusted. They were to be feared because the gods were angry. That was the reality the Hebrew people were living in, first as immigrants and then as slaves for generations. In Egypt, those were their gods. That was their theology. In Egypt, there were over a hundred gods and goddesses that were worshipped in different temples throughout Egypt. And they all were, like, they had different departments. It was like a theology department store. And every god or goddess had their own little, you know, uh, part of life that they looked after. So it was like the god of war. And there was the goddess of fertility, there was like the god of sleep. And there was the goddess of beer. That's how specific this was. There was a goddess of beer. I see some of your eyes lighting up. Like, I, I, I need to explore Egyptian religion more, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Careful. There was a goddess of beer. And these gods were in control of everything, every part of life. They were in control. And they were very arbitrary about it. They were moody. They were like petulant children. They didn't care about your well-being. And they didn't really give you what you wanted. Usually, now if you happen to catch a god or goddess on the right day, the god or goddess might smile on you, but it wasn't because the god or goddess loved you. It's because you happened to catch them in a good mood. They happened to be having a good day. That was the personality, the character and nature of these gods and goddesses in Egypt. I'll give you some examples. So if you're in battle and you lose a battle in a war, it's not because you were less prepared than the other army. It wasn't because the other army outmatched you. It was because the god of war just didn't really like you very much. If you were having trouble going to, uh, and having a baby, if you were having trouble conceiving, getting pregnant, it wasn't because of any medical condition or you and your husband's blood type or whatever medical issues we attribute that to today. It was because the goddess of fertility didn't really care about you, was angry at you, was disappointed in you, had had enough of you, was tired of you, asking all the time for a baby and didn't really want to hear it anymore. That was the reality. Whenever you had trouble 
uh, getting to sleep. You couldn't, you had like recurring nightmares. It was because the God of sleep just didn't really like you very much. If you went to specs and they were out of everything except Bud Light Lime, like the goddess of beer just hated you. That was, that was the only reason. There was no other reason. You can replace that joke with any other beer that you hate, right? So uh, Miller Lite or anything else that you really think is disgusting. Bud Light Lime is the worst. So if that happened, the goddess of beer hated you. And so Leviticus comes along, and, and the Hebrew people are wandering in the wilderness. They've escaped their slavery in Egypt. And Leviticus introduces this new kind of God who is wanting not only the well-being of the people, this God wants to be among the people. This God doesn't want to be high and mighty in the clouds, overseeing things, playing it out like a chessboard where you are the pawn. This God says, let me be with you. Let's be in relationship. Let me show you the better way to, to live. Let, let me be among you. And it was just an absurd idea at the time. This theology would have been an absurd notion that God wants to be among you. And it, it is so dramatically different from what was happening in Egypt because what was happening there perpetuated anxiety among the people. Let me tell you why. If you're a farmer, your family depends on your success in farming and there's been a drought and you go to the God of the harvest temple and you take whatever it is you can find and you offer it up, you know, money or livestock or whatever it is you can find and you offer it up to the God of the harvest in the hopes that he will send you some rain so that your family doesn't starve. And then you go home. When you leave that place, you don't feel any more assured than when you came. You're still just as scared of a drought. You're still just as afraid that the God doesn't care about you. So you go home and you wait six weeks and no rain comes. What do you do then? You put together some other bigger, more valuable offering and you go back and you give all that you have to this God in the hopes that you'll get his attention and satisfy him. Finally, the same thing happens. No more rain. Your family is starving. And this is the kind of perpetual anxiety that led to extreme religious practices in the time like child sacrifice that was common throughout the region. Not so much in Egypt. It did happen in Egypt, but throughout the region was pretty common at this time. Because when you have nothing else to give, when you have nothing left, and the rest of your family is starving, what are you going to offer this God to try and get his attention so that he will send some rain? So you get, you get the idea there was just this constant fear, this constant anxiety in relationship to the gods. And so that's what the Hebrew people had grown used to. They were accustomed and assimilated to that kind of uh, religion. So these are the gods that they worship. So that's why God says over and over in Leviticus, I'm the Lord, your God. Here we have in Exodus 34, this is where God describes himself to the people. Exodus 34, God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgression, forgiving sin. Here we have the ludicrous, absurd idea that there is a God somewhere who not only uh, uh, forgives uh, sin. This, this God forgives all the sin of all time. This God forgives to the thousandth generation. It is this incredible idea that a God doesn't just punish 
sin. This God doesn't profit from your sin. This God forgives sin. This brings us to Leviticus 16, my favorite story in Leviticus. Take your Bibles out, if you will. Leviticus 16 is the chapter where we will be today. If you have your uh, uh, phones or tablets that you use for reading the Bible, that's great too. Otherwise, um, just follow along uh, with me uh, on the screens in Leviticus uh, 16. What we have here is uh, we're describing uh, in Leviticus 16 the holiest day of the Jewish year. It's called Yom Kippur. It means the Day of Atonement. And uh, it was the day that the people all came together to have all of their sins forgiven. And to begin the Day of Atonement, the high priest Aaron would go into the holiest place, into the sanctuary, and he would kill a bull to uh, atone for his own sins because Aaron had to be clean and atoned for too because he was just a guy, even though he was a priest, a sinner like everyone else. And if he's going to stand in for all the other people, he needs to get his sin taken care of first. So he slaughters the bull and offers the bull's blood up as a sin offering. Now, I know this kind of makes us queasy. Any animal lovers in the house? Okay, you're going to have to deal with this for a second <laughs> because this was before the days of PETA. PETA would not be happy with Levitical practice. But remember not to be, how, you know, we're talking about chronological snobbery the last couple of weeks. Watch your chronological snobbery here because these people believed that their sins created a debt, a cosmic debt, a debt in the universe that someone had to pay. They believed, like we all believe, that there is a right way to live your life. There's a right way to be towards your neighbor. There's a right way to be in relationship with God. And when you fall short of that, it creates a debt. And they thought the debt was so deep, so grave, that only something as precious as, uh, as blood would atone for it. So that's what's going on in Leviticus 16 so far. So uh, here we go. Uh, they gather together. All the people, imagine all the people gathered around, all the Hebrew people in the area gathered around Aaron has atoned for his own sin, and everyone else has brought their own sin with them. It's like they're carrying a bunch of baggage with them. Imagine all the sins you've committed for a year. Imagine remembering them, journaling them, whatever, and bringing them with you to the holy place. So all the lies they've told, all the promises they've broken, all the people they've taken for granted all the people they've hurt, the people they've hurt them, that, that have hurt them and they haven't forgiven, all the individual sins, but then there's all the communal sins as well, the collective sins. And this is an awesome thing to think about, um, but the sins we commit as the people of God. And I've wondered as I prepared for this sermon, what would it be like if all the Christians in Houston got together at NRG Stadium once a year to talk about and repent from our communal sins, the ways that we have misrepresented the love of God, just to be contrite for a moment and repent from the ways that we have turned people away from Jesus instead of welcoming them to him. This would be like, so the Day of Atonement scene was kind of like if all the Christians in Houston got together and said one in four Houstonians lives in deep poverty. And I didn't really pay attention to it this year. We didn't really do enough about it. Forgive us, God. Show us a better way. It would be like us coming together and saying there are 200 active brothels in our city and two or three more open every single month. And most of us drive by those massage parlors or those cantinas or those seedy strip clubs without even a second thought. Not only do we not do anything about it, we have become so jaded, we don't even pray for those girls inside, more than half of whom are slaves from other places. What if we were contrite for just a day 
and remembered our, our sin. There are over a thousand orphans in the city of Houston and even more in foster care. Do you know how many orphans and foster kids there would be in Houston if every Christian in Houston behaved like Jesus would have us to? Zero. Forgive us, God. This is the somber tone. I know it's kind of a downer, but this is the somber tone that the Day of Atonement begins with. All the people bring all of their sin to the holy place with uh, Aaron there. And then this is what happens, uh, Leviticus 16, 7 through 10. Aaron shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. All right. So uh, I feel like to properly describe what's happening here. It's kind of complicated, lots of weird words. I'm, I'm actually going to need a couple of goats. So does anyone have some goats that I could use for a minute? It just so happens someone brought two goats to church today. All right, so uh, goats, uh, make your way forward. The goats are thrilled to be here. Um, they're like, I've heard about you people and what you do with my kind. So they're struggling uh, to get up here. I promise goats, I'm not armed. It's all good. All right, everybody say... Hi to dump truck. This is dump truck. Uh, all the way around here, there's the stairs. Careful with the communion table, dump truck. And this is sugar. Everybody say hi to sugar. Oh, all right. Come on up. Come on, dump truck. You got it. All right. Thank you, dump truck. Okay, don't jump. All right, so this is what would happen. I'll take sugar. Thank you. Come here, sugar. Okay. So, uh, Aaron would take the two goats and they would cast lots over the goats. Casting lots was kind of like drawing straws, which would be impossible with goats because they don't have opposable thumbs to draw the straws. So it's kind of like, uh, like flipping a coin, right? So he flipped a coin and the one that wins uh, gets to stay and gets to live. And the one that loses uh, is offered up as a blood offering uh, on behalf of the sins of all the people that have been committed, right? So I, when, I, when I envisioned this, the goats were not this cute. So I need you to work with me here and just imagine some big old ugly goats, okay? That's gonna help you through the rest of this process. So one of the goats was sacrificed as a blood offering for atonement for all of the sins, for the forgiveness of all the sins of all the people. And so uh, we'll call that sugar. So sugar can, can go, I'm sorry. Everybody say bye, sugar. Everybody say thank you for doing that, sugar, for my sins. All right, and I'll take dump truck. All right, come here, dump truck. This here is dump truck. <laughs> and here is what would happen next. Dump truck got the lot that was cast, what's called for Azazel. Okay? Azazel matters deeply. If you ever study guides, you might want to write this part down. Azazel is a word that means to take away. To take away, right? 
And it is the word where we get a scapegoat from, right? So the word scapegoat finds its root in Leviticus 16. Azazel is the root word for scapegoat. And we all know what scapegoat means. It means uh, someone who takes the fall, who takes on the consequences of something that they don't deserve, that they didn't do. That's where the word scapegoat comes from. And that's kind of what Azazel means. And so uh, Aaron would take the goat and pray on, over its head like this, touching its head, and, and, and confess all the sins of all the people over this goat's head, which is interesting because I thought the other goat already died for the sins, right? Hang in there. Aaron prays over the sins of the, goats, uh, of the people, over the goat's head, in effect, transferring the guilt. So this is like a guilt offering, transferring all the guilt y'all came with today onto this goat. And it was, it was symbolic, but the people believed the symbolism was real because of God and the nature of, and character of the God that they were getting to know in the wilderness. They believed that God not only forgave sin, but God could take their guilt away as well. And that God desired them to be free of the shame and guilt that they came with. And so after he prayed, Aaron would tie a red cord around the goat's head. And that was symbolic of the people's blood, like a symbol of their sin, of their blood on this goat. And then Azazel, the goat dump truck, would be led away. Are you a Gentile? Yeah, she's a Gentile. It'd be led away by a Gentile. Usually they would pay a Gentile to lead Azazel away. Now, why do you think all the Jewish people would pay a Gentile to lead Azazel away? Nobody wanted to have anything to do with this goat. It's a complicated goat. It's got all the sins of all the people in it, you know? And so it was, nobody wanted to see any more of this goat. And so usually they paid a Gentile person to, uh, to take the goat away into the wilderness. And the symbolism, the symbolism of this could not be clearer. God not only forgives sins, God removes the sin from the people. This was the kind of God the people were learning to believe in. Not only a God that forgives your sin, a God that removes sin from your presence. This is what the God of Leviticus is proposing. So I want to recall you now to the gods of Egypt the religious system that perpetuated anxiety, perpetuated fear, where you went to the temple, offered what you could, but you left exactly the same as you came with no more sense of assurance, no more sense of security, not knowing where you stood with this God and just hoping that God had a good day and would smile on you. Here we have a different kind of God in Leviticus. Suddenly this God is saying, this happens and we are good. Sin is forgiven, sin is removed, we are in right relationship. What was broken has been atoned for. What was uncertain has been made sure. And so on the day of atonement, no matter how you were feeling coming into the church or coming into the holy place, you left with that sense of assurance. No matter how much baggage you brought with you, how much shame and guilt, you left feeling at one with God. Now for Christians... The Day of Atonement means something, too, kind of on a different level and in a different way. But for us, Leviticus 16 foreshadows something and an even greater atonement. 
The parallels of these stories should not be lost on us. I'm sure you probably picked up on some of it as we were acting it out with Dump Truck and Sugar. Thank you. And uh, the parallels in the New Testament are found in John 19-ish, around there uh, in those chapters. Where So in Leviticus 16, you have the two goats standing before the people in the story of Jesus' arrest. You have Jesus standing with the other, the criminal Barabbas, standing before the people as a choice, as an option, and Barabbas kind of disappears, and Jesus is left there, just like I was here with Dump Truck, the Azazel. After Aaron prayed over the head of uh, the scapegoat, he tied the red cord around it, signifying what? The blood of the people. We know after Jesus was arrested and sent away, the Roman soldiers in John 19, they wove a crown of thorns and they pressed it down on Jesus' head, opening up wounds all around his head, opening up bleeding wounds, symbolizing what? The sins of the people. We know... We know that when Jesus stood before the mob and Pontius Pilate said, here is your king, the king of the Jews, the mob responded, what? Pontius Pilate said, what shall I do with him? The mob responded, everybody says crucify him. At one point they do say crucify him, but more emphatically in John 19, they say, and I quote, take him away. You remember what Azazel means? To take away. A Gentile is paid to remove the goat from the village. Who is it that leads Jesus out of the city and takes him away? Gentiles in the form of Roman soldiers. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is our Azazel. Jesus takes on himself Whatever sins, whatever baggage, whatever shame you brought with you this morning, whatever shame you will ever feel or have ever felt, Jesus takes it on and pays whatever price it is you thought you owed for the things you did or left undone. And that's not even the best part. We're getting there. The best part is in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. If you can find it in your Bibles, it's great to follow along. If not, don't let it distract you. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we will read from verses 1 through 4 and verses 11 through 18. Here we go. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities, the law, that is the Old Testament religious code, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Amen, dump truck? Dump truck in the house? No, dump truck's gone. All right, I'm sure he would approve of that statement. And then verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands day after day at his service, 
offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you hear it? Once and for all, what he's saying is that religion can be good. Religion, like the one we find in Leviticus, can be light years ahead of what's normal in any given time and place. But religion in itself, religious codes and laws in and of themselves, can't do anything to really liberate you from your debt, from whatever it is we've done or left undone. Religion just temporarily fixes the problem. When we're just religious, our sins always come back to haunt us. When we're just religious, there's always that moment when you wake up in the morning and look outside and there's that old goat in your backyard again. The one you sent away, it's come back and you think to yourself, not that again. Because they come back to haunt you again and again when we're just religious. But according to the sacrifice of Christ, every sin you've committed has been not only forgiven, it has been removed. And not only, not only the sins you have committed and the shame you have felt, not only the sins you committed on your way to church this morning, today, or the shame you felt this morning walking in those doors, not only how rude you're going to be to each other in the parking lot getting out of this construction mess. Not only today, not only yesterday, the sins you haven't even committed yet have already been forgiven. The things you've already done and left undone, the debt you haven't even incurred yet, it's already been paid. The things you owe, you don't owe anymore. I don't think we really get this as Christians because we still refer to ourselves as just a bunch of broken sinners, people constantly in need of some new grace and some new redemption, constantly backsliding. We don't get it because of what Christ has done once and for all. Every sin there ever was and ever will be has already been atoned for. It is a beautiful new reality. Sometimes we Christians get in the habit of telling people over and over again all the things they are not. Sometimes people get used to going to church and hearing all the ways that they are not enough, that they're not doing enough, they're not giving enough, they are not enough. But I wonder what would happen if we as Christians made a habit out of reminding people not just what they're not, Reminding people of what they are. I wonder what kind of power is held, would be held in, the, in, in the, the discipline, the practice of encouragement. Telling people not just you know, the stuff they haven't done, but the stuff they can do. Not just the stuff they're not, the stuff they are. Imagine. I wonder how many more people would do the right thing and behave in the right way if they knew really who they are and what they are worth instead of just being beaten down further by religion. 
I was talking to a guy this week at Buffalo Grill, a couple of guys in our 30s, just enjoying breakfast, and then he told me something that's going on in his life. He said his daughter is self-destructing. His teenage daughter is caught up in all kinds of bad habits. He walked me through them, and he started crying there. And I'm like, guy, you're, you're kind of ruining our, our, our guy vibe here at Buffalo Grill. He's crying in front of me, and through his tears, he's describing his daughter's behavior, and it just breaks his heart. And he looks at me, and he says, I only wish she could learn to see herself the way I see her. I couldn't help thinking that must be what God says about us, every one of us, every single day. If only you could see yourself the way God, through Christ, has chosen to see you. Because you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you see a bunch of flaws that need covering up. I'm telling you and I swear before God today, God looks at you and sees perfection that needs uncovering. You look at yourself and you see some kind of sinner with all kinds of problems. God looks at you and sees this saint, a saint that doesn't even know it yet. Someone created a little higher than the angels, a son of the Most High God, an image of Jesus Christ himself. You have no idea who you are when you allow yourself to be wrapped up in sin and shame. When you live without atonement, when you live without What Jesus offers, you wrap yourself in that daily shame, in that daily sin. I believe Jesus calls us to something better today. You came to church this morning carrying all kinds of baggage. I know you did. Whether you're covering it up or whether you're vulnerable and being open about it, we all brought different kinds of baggage with you. The good news that I want to share with you today is that If you're willing, Jesus can take that off your hands today. Jesus can handle whatever heavy shame, whatever heavy guilt you brought with you. He really can change your life, change your thinking, and change the way you see yourself in the mirror every morning. And not just based on what you have done, but based on what you will do and every mistake that you've ever made. I'm telling you, Jesus has already picked up the tab and paid what was owed and what will be owed. It's paid. The invoice has been paid in full. It is a glorious thing. You have nothing left to do except one thing. All you have to do is say yes. Say yes. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to his sacrifice. Say yes, I was a sinner. And yes, because of Jesus, I am no longer who I was. Yes, I am who God says I am. Yes, I will see myself the way God sees me. Yes, every sin I ever committed, every sin I will commit has been covered by the blood of the cross. Yes, yes, I am yours. That is all Jesus leaves for you to do. My prayer is that someone here today will once and for all put down the pride, put down the false self-sufficiency and say, yes, I receive I receive that forgiveness today. Would you pray with me? 
God, I'm just, uh, just praying right now for those in this room who are considering making a change to the way they live their lives and the way we see ourselves. Just praying, God, that the message of atonement, that once and for all sacrifice, would somehow sink into our lives and so that we would stop running from one place to another, seeking approval of others and seeking acceptance and realize that right now the people in these chairs right here, no matter what we're carrying, we are already accepted. We look at ourselves and sometimes we just feel worthless or like we don't matter. And your word reminds us, God, that you looked at us and saw someone that's worth dying for. We thank you for this reminder, oh God. Open our eyes to see this deeper reality that the things we're seeking redemption for and forgiveness for, it's already happened and we just have to say yes today. Believe that we are who you say we are. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.